Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Immigrants incarcerated at the Folkston Ice Processing Center launched a hunger strike after a protest was held in front of the prison on April 16th. There is currently a campaign against plans to drastically expand FIPC, which would make it the largest prison for immigrants in the country. In a press statement released by the campaign to shut down FIPC, campaign organizer Nat Villasana explained, quote, this hunger strike is being carried out to protest abuse human rights violations, excessive delays in legal proceedings, and retaliation that many are facing about speaking out about their conditions. The strike began on April 18th, after inmates were placed in solitary confinement for staying in the yard to chant and speak with outside protesters through the fences during the April 16th protest. Following this, the entire B4 unit refused to eat, kicking off the hunger strike. The immigrants who were placed in solitary confinement faced dehumanizing conditions. In the press release, Villasana explained, quote, We are told that while in isolation, they are only served one meal a day. Spoiled milk is the only thing provided for breakfast, and they are only let out once a day for time to shower. Richard Lilgarose and Harold Mortis, incarcerated at the Fremont Correctional Facility in Kayon City, Colorado, filed a lawsuit alleging that the state of Colorado, Governor Jared Polis, and the State of Department of Corrections, or the DOC, violated a 2018 state constitutional amendment that extended its prohibition against slavery to prisoners. Before passage of Amendment A, which 66% of Colorado voters voted for, Colorado's constitution was one of over a dozen state constitutions in the U.S. with a ban on slavery for everyone except those incarcerated, like the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. The prisoner's lawsuit alleges that Colorado has ignored the voters' wishes by coercing its prisoners to work against their will under the threat of punishment. DOC policy resulted in charging the prisoners with a Class II violation for refusing to do jobs the prison administration assigned to them in late 2020. Their punishment was a loss of earned time. Mortis, who is asthmatic, said he contracted COVID-19 while working in the prison kitchen and didn't want to become reinfected by returning to work there. Logaro said working in the kitchen during the pandemic exacerbated his post-traumatic stress disorder. The lawsuit contends that the punishment is excessive if a prisoner refuses to work because he or she fears contracting a disease or if the job aggravates a current mental or physical health problem. Morris and Logaros want no money damages, but an injunction preventing the DOC from enforcing its policy because of Amendment A. A former Alabama prison officer has been indicted on federal charges of assaulting three inmates and then submitting a false statement about the incident, prosecutors said Friday. Lorenzo Mills, who worked as a sergeant at Draper Prison in Elmore County, was charged in an indictment with violating the civil rights of the men by hitting them with a wooden baton in October 2020, according to court documents and a statement from the Justice Department. Mills, 55, 
was also accused later of falsely writing a statement that he hadn't used force against the inmates, who prosecutors said weren't resisting. Federal court records didn't include the name of a defense lawyer who could speak on behalf of Mills. Mills previously was charged with assault in state court over the alleged beatings. Two of the men suffered bruises on their backside, and one sustained a fractured arm, court records show. The Center for Constitutional Rights has announced that Mohammed al Qatani, held at Guantanamo Bay Prison, has finally been released. al Qatani, now in his 40s, was diagnosed with schizophrenia long before he was sent to Guantanamo, where he was tortured and held for 20 years. The abuse left him with post-traumatic stress disorder and intensified the hallucinations, suicidal thoughts, and depressive episodes that his pre-existing mental illness caused, making his transfer out of the prison urgent. Shayana Kadidal, senior managing attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights, commented, quote, We are very hopeful that with proper treatment and his family nearby, al will learn to manage his symptoms and salvage the remainder of his life, end quote. The center was the first organization to file a case on behalf of men imprisoned at Guantanamo. It had pledged to fight until all four of its remaining clients are released and the prison is shut down permanently. Four students who were arrested before last year's coup for an anti-war protest in Rakhine were released from prison after one and a half years. The four students were detained in the state capital of Sitwe in October 2020 during a protest against the military's ongoing attacks in the state. Demonstrators at the rally outside a local government building held signs reading, We don't want the fascist army. We don't want a colonial government. And... No bloody government, Burmese government, get out. The National League for Democracy, NLD, government at the time was a vocal supporter of the military's war against the Arakan army. The state councilor's administration reportedly called on the military to crush the group. The four students left Sitwe prison at around 6 a.m. after having their sentences reduced, an executive committee member of the Arakan Students' Union said. The students were jailed for incitement as well as for allegedly breaching COVID-19 restrictions with the protest. Following an appeal, the court agreed to reduce their sentences in December. They were denied bail during their trial on the grounds that breaches of the disaster management law that covers COVID-19 restrictions were not bailable. Several legal aid teams, including the Rakhine Lawyers Council, the Citwe District Lawyers Association, Thazin Legal Aid, and the legal clinic Myanmar strongly criticized that decision. At the time of their arrest, the military's war against the Arakan army had been raging for almost two years, displacing tens of thousands and wounding or killing hundreds of civilians. Amnesty International accused the military of war crimes during the clashes. Last week marked our 300th episode. Over the next few weeks, we'll be sharing clips of our favorite moments from our archived shows. The following story is from Mark Cook, one of my all-time favorite guests on KiteLine. In this gem, Cook, a founding member of the Walla Walla Black Panther Party, tells us the story of using stolen materials from prison work to construct a printing press for the distribution of radical materials across the prison. 
made from simple kitchen and household items, they created a newspaper that informed prisoners of various actions and shared gossip about prison officials. We'll have a link to the full episode with Mark Cook on our website, but for now, here he is. As I, I was helping politicize the, these guys for Panther work, there were these Canadian, uh, well, you can call, call them immigrants if you want, but they were, you know, came down to get some money out of the uh, United States, bank robberies, et cetera. But they, they, were, they were pretty sharp. And this one, uh, his name was, uh, oh God, Eugene Ostergaard, he was a French Canadian. And they had, the prison had given him a permit to do curio work. In other words, be able to make jewelry boxes and cabinets and small stuff. As part of this, they, he got access to wood and mirrors. You know, he had these big mirrors and he had cut them down to size for his jewelry boxes. But they were re really big. So he came to me one day and said, you know, how about us starting kind of a revolution in here, an underground newspaper? I said, said, there's too many snitches in here, we'll, we'd never get away with it. He said, if only a few of us knew, knew, no. I said, there's always a snitch, snitch. He says, no. He said, they, they said, they trusted me. And they said, they trusted themselves. And they, they had guys who they'd been helping with escapes and stuff like that. And we can trust those guys too. So there was, ended up being six of us. It was uh, the two Canadians, one white American, he was out of Yakima, or all. That's overall. There was a Mexican-American, Frank Roth. He was the smartest among all of us. He's the one that gave us all the, our ideas. And of course, there was me. And St. Peter was the escape, escape artist. And the reason we used in St. Peter because he was a real hustler. He could find anything we needed in the prison, uh, any, any parts of the prison. So the idea was to make a printing press based on a book that this one of these Canadians had read, uh, uh, Prisoners of War who did this uh, es escape. And in order to do the escape, they had to make phony pr papers. So they had to print those papers. And so th this is what we did. We took the mirror, and it was larger than a size of regular uh, uh, type, typing paper. And we framed it with, a, with the, the wood sticks he got for his uh, 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 curio work and uh, uh, what you call mask, masking tape to, the, to the, that. We got some uh, gelatin from the kitchen, and this was St. Peter's job, just get us some gelatin. And, and we boiled it down in these pitches. We had to make stingers. Stingers, I don't know if you know what they are. That's how you boil water in prison illegally. In those days, you, we could have razor blades. And what we did, take two razor blades and separate them with uh, wooden matchsticks, of course we could smoke, and tie them tight with uh, thread, things we sewed our buttons on and stuff with, real tight. We pulled a, a cord off a radio and a little alligator clip to the razor blades. Uh, filled a, a big glass jug with, with uh, water, dropped that in there and plugged it into a socket. It started boiling immediately. When it got going good, then we put the gelatin in, stir it up, dissolve it totally and then pour it in this little frame on the mirror. Okay, then we had our typewriters. We are allowed to have typewriters. Uh, we got these, uh, what do you call, diddle masters. These are things that were used for printing a long time ago in, in diddle, diddle machines, that there's carbon on one side and paper on the other side. So regularly you type on the, the white page and it comes out uh, negative on the other side. 
but we flipped it, flipped it over and typed on the carbon side so it come out the regular. And then we laid that on top of the gelatin after it cooled and pressed it out and smoothed it out. And it absorbed the ink off of this paper into the gelatin. Okay, then we took that off. Then we got this plain typing paper, laid it on that, smoothed it down, and peeled it off. There was a printing press. So we'll, it, it, and when we used up that side, because there was a glass underneath, another smooth surface, we just flip it over and do the process all over again. Just do the typing and do the thing all over. So we did approximately 20% to cover the entire prison population. Distributing was fairly easy. We'd leave it in, you know, the lockers in the rec room or in the bleachers or in the bathrooms. But we couldn't let anybody know who was doing this. And every once in a while, we'd drop one in front of the, the officer's control room and they'd pick one up. And they, they'd actually get them too because we had a lot of uh, snitching on the, the officers, things that they were doing in the prison or messing with each other's wives and stuff like that. And we printed So they were anxious to get this newspaper too. But the main thing was, was get, get in tune with all of the prisoners and on the, be on the same page. They weren't allowed to know who we were. They wouldn't know it because with a, you know, a racial uh, tensions, we'd hit our races in there. They didn't know whether we were you know, straight or gay or whatever. But the, prints, the stuff we put in there, everybody identified with various rules. We even had this little uh, filler we put in called uh, logic is. And one of the logic is things was you weren't allowed to have your shirt tails out unless you were in the yard. You had to have them tucked in at all times when you're walking around the population. And you could untuck them when you got in your cell. And when we said uh, log logic is that we'd cause problems by having our shirt tails pulled out, and everybody agreed and understood that. Another thing was uh, we were, weren't allowed to grow sideburns, mustaches, or long hair. It had to be a quarter inch or shorter. And we says logic is, is, is having short hair so it won't cause uh, lice to deform around the place. You know, we took a little thing about women's prisons, they never ever got their hair. Okay. So we had the little things like that, plus the articles about the uh, warden's wife who would get money to, for the blood that we donated. We'd donate blood, have a, and she'd get half of the money, and the rest of the money would go to the inmates' fund. And we, we put that in there. Prisoners didn't know it, but we were able to get information like that. Prisoners had made to make a, a horse walk for the warden was using prisoners' labor to do that, and he wasn't supposed to do that. We got a brand new set of drums sent in from people outside for our band, but the warden took the drums for his daughters and gave us the old drums, you know. That didn't work. I mean, we'll really get him, get him riled up in prison. Up next, we share a call from a Canadian prisoner named Renford Ferrier. We'll air more of this conversation next week, but for now, Ferrier introduces us to himself and his case. You'll hear some similarities with what Baye Sylvester talked about last week, the way that plea deals and faith in the system can confuse and intimidate prisoners and their families into accepting unfavorable charges. Let's get started. here today with Renford Ferrier. Absolutely just a, a pleasure to have him here on the show with us today. And Renford would love to just kind of start off talking just a little bit. If you could just tell us a little bit about yourself 
um, and where you are and, uh, you know, what your, what part of your story has been? Well, currently, uh, first, let me say, like you said, my name is Renford Farrier. I'm a 50 year old man incarcerated in the Canadian medium security prison at the time. My sentence was life 10 for second degree murder, which I got at the age of 20. And I'm currently here 30 years in, 20 years past my parole eligibility. We'll get more into why, I, how my crime took place and what happened throughout my crime. And you'll get to know more about me as we go along here, right? Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe do you want to just start off by just talking a little bit about like what a life 10 sentence is, you know, for folks in the U.S., that's not something that will immediately register and just maybe laying out a little bit just about, just about what that is and, you know, how it, how it applies and how it's affected the trajectory of, of your life. Okay. So a life 10 sentence usually handed out is the least you can get for a murder. Right. So it ranges from 10 up. Right. And 25 being the most for first degree. So I was given the life 10 because it's not a premeditated murder. Right. And I was given the 10 because it's like I said, it's the least you can get for a life sentence. And at the, at the, the time of my sentencing, the judge made that clear that they were trying to give me the least time possible because of my young age with the hopes that I'll be able to come back out of society still a relatively young man. So what that entitles now is after 10 years, you're eligible for parole. You're eligible for full parole. You can begin first parole, day parole, which is outside of the jail on whether works like scored or just visiting people after seven years, right? But 10 years is your full parole eligibility where you're now eligible to go home to your family, but you're on parole for life where that means you would report forever and you would never be free of the system. So talk us through a little bit just in terms of, you know, I, I know that that was a plea deal. You know, if you want to just talk us a little bit through maybe that aspect of it. So the plea deal took place. Well, first, let me say, okay, maybe I'll tell you a little bit about the crime so we can understand the plea deal. I grew up basically in the Janifush corridor of Toronto, Canada, you know? That's pretty much what you consider America the projects. In, in Canada, we call it Ontario housing, right? I grew up to a single mother, Jamaican descent. I was born in Jamaica and immigrated to Canada, right? And most of my upbringing was in the Janifush corridor. And... Later on, I moved to other housing projects and lived there. So, as we most know, the opportunities in these neighborhoods are very limited, and my main source of income was trafficking in wheat, right? And just, 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 just to give a little bit of background, I trafficked in weed and not crack or cocaine at the time because it was I didn't want to be part of that environment. I figured trafficking in wheat would keep me somewhat out of the elements that come with trafficking in cocaine and crack. So my main source of income was trafficking in wheat. And through that, I began to know certain people and certain individuals. And the more I sold, the more individual I got to know. And I got to know an individual that was supplying me with an abundance amount. And there was a 
a false rumor going around that I was planning to have this person set up and rob and their boyfriend, because it was a female that I was dealing with. Her boyfriend heard this, and her boyfriend was a guy who was a who was a a top guy. You know what I mean? In 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 Jamaican terminology, let's say not a bad man, right? So he heard this and figured, hey, nobody's going to rob his girl, which was so far from the truth. So he approached me in the neighborhood that I was at and proceeded to pistol with me, fire a few shots past my ears and tell me I was lucky he didn't murder me there on the spot. And anybody knowing the lifestyle knows what has to happen now, right? I'm left with the with the only choice of retaliation because that's what the lifestyle dictates. And while hindsight is 2020, I can look now and say I had other options, but at 20 years old, 18 years old, you see only one option, retaliation, right? Mm-hmm. So I went three days later to go give him my retaliation. And like I said, truth be told, I wasn't even aiming to kill this dude. Truth be told, I was just going back to go shoot him. You know what I mean? But one bullet is all it takes to kill somebody. But anyway, I shot him three times and murdered him, right? And knowing what I had done, I fled the country. So I was apprehended in Miami and brought back to Canada to face trial. So let's get to the plea fee part of it now. So... This whole experience is a new experience for me and my family, what's happening. So we get a lawyer through legal aid because, like I said, we're from the projects. We don't, we don't have money like that. And when I went on the run, that, cut, that took a lot away the funds that I would have saved up. You know what I mean? So we get a – and I think in America it would be called um, a court-appointed lawyer. In Canada, it's called legal aid where the court appoints a lawyer for you. You know what I mean? So the lawyer that appointed for us – proceeded to explain to us that, hey, um, the evidence is, is, is substantial, and if you go to trial, you could get found guilty on first-degree murder, which carries a 25-year sentence. My family, hearing that, panicked, and they're like, so what's the option? He's like, well, I can get a plea deal, and he can get 10 years, and he'll be out in 10 years, but it'll still be a life sentence, but he'll get parole in 10 years. And Putting our full trust in the lawyer, we believe that. But what he did supersede to tell us is life is life. There is no, there is no, you do this number, you get out, right? It's you do the number and the parole board and Corrections Canada decide when you get out, right? So upon his suggestion, upon his recommendation, we went ahead and said, okay, my family, we sat down and like said, hey, listen, you 20, 21, 10 years, you 31, you're still relatively young. You can come home and you be good. You start your life again, right? So we hadn't went ahead. He pled guilty to that life 10 sentence. Here I sit 30 years later. Oh, can I ask you just to talk just a little bit about your family and your connection to Jamaica and to get a sense of just like, that that world that you were coming from in Canada, you know, that's something that is an interesting interesting connection, you know, that maybe we don't have exactly in the U.S. in the same way. Could you just say maybe just a little bit about that as well? Well, it's 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 a funny thing, right? Because 
I tell most people that I had to leave from the pretty much projects and move into suburbs to actually commit my first criminal activity, right? Because while growing up in the hood, there was a point in time where my mother brought us out to another area in in Ontario, which was called Kitchener, which is a, basically a suburb, you know what I mean? And I went to a private school and stuff, but I didn't fit in there because nobody there looked like me, nobody there talked like me. So I couldn't fit in there, you know? And I actually committed a break and enter into a store with some with some white dudes thinking that's how I was going to get to fit in, right? But that didn't work out, but back to the original of your, or your question like so I come from a, like I told you a single mom home I have two brothers and a sister who are here with me in Canada an older brother older sister than me and then a younger brother my younger brother was born here in Canada but the other of us were born in Jamaica my mother migrated to Canada on her own and then sent for us later on right so while growing up in the Jane and Finch Quarter in those times, most of the people there are Caribbean, majority Jamaican. So you're in your community, you're in your environment where everybody looks like everybody, talks like everybody, and lives and does the same kind of thing, right? So you're not out of place in any way. And all the dudes in the, in the, in the neighborhood that are doing their thing, they're all Jamaican too. So you have that culture. You didn't lose that culture even while in Canada. And when you grow up in that culture, there are certain things about the Jamaican culture that just stay with you. And like, if any of your listeners are Jamaican, they can understand, uh, like, like if I said, as a Jamaican, you're not tech check, meaning you don't stand for certain stuff. You know what I mean? And Americans, a lot of Americans in the, in the, in the ghetto are the same kind of vibe, right? It's just in a different culture. As a, as a kid growing up, no lie, my childhood was good. I ain't even gonna lie to you, right? Because from a single mom, she, she tried to make every opportunity available. My brothers and sister never been involved in anything criminal. That was just me, right? So that's, 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 that's one of the crazy things when you check it. My older brother, my older sister, my younger brother, they was always straight. And... The only thing I was even criminal before this murder, like I said, was selling weed because it was a means of income, right? That wasn't somebody going out there robbing and stealing and things of that nature. That wasn't who my mother raised us to be, right? And even even to this very day, my mother's never seen me smoke, shrink, swear, none of those things. And I'm a grown man with kids and grandkids. But that's the level of respect that you're taught at home. Right. So my childhood wasn't of anything but love. You know what I mean? From family, from friends. And it was all good. Right. It's it's just when you're involved in that lifestyle, there's rules that come with that. And if you're going to be part of it, you have to abide by those rules. And that was the thing. Thanks to both Farrier and Cook. We'll have links to our archived episodes with Mark Cook on our website, and we'll hear more of Farrier's story next week. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. 
And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.